as, as we begin, um, I'm always baffled and uh, really, as you've seen this, this season, we've chosen the word wonder to, to, to really think about uh, the different things of, of Christmas and around this Advent season and in Scripture and as we look at Christ, what great wonder it brings. And when you look at Scripture, there, there's some things that baffle us, that cause curiosity, that cause great wonder. And um, it's all over the place, from the sp- splitting of the Red Sea in the Old Testament to manna falling from the sky. Do you ever read that place in, in Scripture like, hey, that's pretty cool, just Food starts showing up on the ground and things like that, and um, uh, it's it, it amazing to me. And, and then we see Jonah uh, surviving in a fish, and you know it looks cute in a, in, a, in a book and everything, but he actually survived in a real fish, right? And you you hear about the moon turning to blood, and, and you hear you th- you see these things, and and they baffle you, right? And they can at times maybe overtake you and draw your attention too much to those things, but. Today we see another. It's the star that the Magi saw in the east that David just read about. And so many questions that we don't know the answers to, but the point of the star and the others throughout the Old Testament, these occurrences, point to the star of heaven and earth, which is Jesus Christ. And that's who the one that the Magi came seeking after, eventually finding and eventually worshiping, as we just read in Matthew And so we're going to look at this text this morning. It's a familiar text, no doubt. Uh, This morning, uh, I pray this as we look at it, as we look at the context, as we look at the setting and some historical things that I think um, help us apply this one thought this morning, that, that God wants us to be seekers, that God wants us to seek after him, just like these magi did, many of them. In fact, we're going to hear about that this morning. They were stirred over finding this newborn child, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied about, the one promised, and the one that they found there, and they worshiped him. And so I pray this morning, especially this Advent season, that we would be seekers after Christ, that we would treasure Jesus just as these did on this occurrence um, back in Matthew chapter 2. And so let's look at the text this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 to give us the context and the setting of what's going on here in, in Matthew. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And they were saying this, they were asking this around the town. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Okay, that's an interesting statement. His star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him as well. And so here you have the time of the setting of what our biblical text this morning. And we find that Jesus has already been born. He's been born. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, uh, as we looked at Micah and we looked at Isaiah as well. And Bethlehem was that quiet little town, approximately about five or six miles to the south of Jerusalem. The name Bethlehem actually means house of bread, right? How fitting of a name of the city, of the place where the very bread of life, Jesus Christ, would be 
born. And so the town of Bethlehem was the home. It was the city of the great king of Israel by the name uh, of David. And so we hear about that in 1 Samuel, indicating that this was where David was from. And it was in this little village that the people of God had long expected that the Messiah would be born in, as we read about in Matthew, or excuse me, in Micah chapter 5. And so they waited for David's greater son, the Messiah, to come out of David's city of Bethlehem. But when the time of his birth had arrived, as we read about here, as we see in the scripture, it seems that few were aware of it. Have you ever thought about that? It's almost as like God tried to slip into this world unnoticed, except by those who were watching, except by those who were waiting and longing and expecting for his arrival. And so it's interesting the setting and and the place but also the people that were at play during this time. It tells us in verse 1 that this is in the days of Herod the king. And so who is Herod? Some of us call him Herod the Great. He was the king of the Jews back in 30 BC, uh, 37 BC in that time period. And when we think about this man, he, he loved power. He was what you would call maybe a great politician. But he also was a maniac. He was crazy. He was driven by fear of losing his job, of losing the kingdom. In his last days, uh, in his 70s, he would start suffering from an illness which would increase his paranoia of losing his rule. And so he would turn to uh, cruel acts. He would turn to these fits of rage and jealousy, and he would eventually start killing close associates. He killed his wife. He killed his mom, or, or excuse me, her mother, and at least two of his sons as well. And so this guy's a maniac. He was driven by fear and cruelty. And it was during his final days that these magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem. And so this is the setting. But who are these magi? Magi have many different names, wise men. We have a song, uh, These Three Kings, right? Um, they, they weren't kings, okay? But, but these magi, if we follow um, historical accounts, if we follow biblical accounts of who are these people, we go all the way back to the Babylonian Empire because we see them in the book of Daniel. Um, as an ancient and long-lived people, they continued to live on through the Medo-Persian, the Greek empires, and were still in existence in the Roman Empire when Jesus Christ was born. And so this word magi is simply the name of a certain tribe of people who were the priestly line from among the Medes. So if you go back to history, if you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll read about the Medes. And so now while these magi were dwelling in the area of Babylonian, during the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian empires, They were influenced, and they were influenced heavily by the Jews because, remember, the Jews were held in captivity by the Babylonians in in the Jewish uh, captivity. Um, But these guys were highly ranked officials, and the reason they were was because they had great intuition. They had great wisdom. They had great knowledge, specifically in the area of astrology, of astronomy, Uh, some even in occultic activities as well. And so eventually they would rise to have political power. They would have great influence uh, due to uh, the priestly functions they had as well. Um, But because they had come in contact with Jews over time, um, they were influenced by the likes of Daniel. These magi 
would know about the prophecy about the Messiah. They would know about these prophecies that the Jews knew about. And so during the four world empires of Rome, Babylon, uh, Assyria, and Persia, the Magi served in a very influential capacity as advisors to kings and royalty in the East. And so that's why they earned the reputation of being wise men. That's why we, we call them that. Um, they were the ones that were consulted about the various things uh, that the ruling kings, the nobles, the princes, that they wanted to know about. These were the guys you would go to. And so in scriptures, Magi are found in places like Jeremiah in Daniel's day. And then you think about Daniel. Daniel was appointed the chief of the Magi by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so over time, though, these Magi would start committing to things like Serastrianism, but then also some of them, okay, instead of the occult, they would lean toward fearing God, Daniel's God, because of Daniel's influence of the truth over time. And so these guys sought out different things. Um, politically speak, speaking, um, these guys were great influencers. And when you think about the time period, Rome was greatly afraid of the Eastern Empire. And the reason they were is because of the great distance across the Mediterranean, the desert as well. And so it isolated where these Magi were and where they lived. It isolated the East, the Parthian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, which it became known as as well. It separated them, and so they became this great kingdom. And so you have this great distance between uh, Rome and the East. And so directs, uh, Rome's uh, direct control over most of the world did not impact this area. And so as a result, Rome had fear. Rome had fear. And there was battles and there was wars like in 63, 55, and 40 B.C. in Israel and in the land between the west and the east. And so you had this tension. And so this is kind of the time period that leads up to the time of Christ. And at the time of Christ in the Eastern Empire, and this history lesson is going to go on for like two or three more minutes, all right? The Magistanes is what the Magi were a part of. It was this ruling body, and they functioned like the U.S. Senate. And it was composed of Magi who had the right of absolute choice for the selection of their king. And and so this is where Magi get connected with king, is, is they were referred to as king makers. And at this present time, where we find ourselves in Matthew, they had a real problem in the east, They didn't like their king. In fact, they got rid of him. They disposed of him. They removed him from office. And so they wanted a ruler. They wanted a king um, during this time period. They were searching after a new one to rule the eastern empire. And so for this reason, many believed that's why they began the journey, or at least some of them started heading toward Jerusalem is to look for a new king. And so what you have during this time period, okay, is uncertainty in the east and you have fear in the west, fear in Rome, great anxiety. And so the text greatly reflects that because it says that Herod was troubled. He was troubled upon the arrival of the Magi. So when he heard that the Magi, these Parthian kingmakers, had arrived in Jerusalem, he was rattled, right? And rightly so when you think about it. 
So when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they're asking the people in the city, where is this new king that has been born? Herod gets panicked, knowing that these kingmakers had come to find their king. Now, when we hear the story and when we celebrate Christmas, how many wise men usually show up out of the box each year? Three, right? Three, okay? Why do we, why do we say that? Because of the three gifts, right? But, but what do we know historically about the, this text and what we find from, from, from the history books and what many speak to about what happened here was, was probably there was a lot more than three, right? In fact, many believe that there could have been thousands in this procession that was traveling so far. And you think about the journey from Persia to Jerusalem. It's 800 miles. <clears throat> As one of um, <laughs> our members said at the 9 a.m. Uh, teaching, uh, that's from Amarillo to South Padre, right? I, 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 you know, he was like, hey, use that as an illustration. I was thinking, Amarillo to South Padre, what a trip, all right? But, but that's the distance from Persia to Jerusalem. I would have never thought of that on my own. But anyway, um, and, and many say that it's about an 80-day journey, an 80-day journey. That's a long journey, and that's how far this brigade comes, probably in oriental pomp, like we dressed them up. I had these little figures growing up on the fireplace, and they had these big hats and these, these long robes, and, and they probably were not riding on camels, probably more like maybe Persian horses or whatever it may be, um, but, but you have this, this cavalryman that probably came with them, and, and this great um, group that charged to the city of Jerusalem, okay? And they come into the city, and can you imagine Herod peeking out his window, right? And they're asking, have you heard about this king that's been born, okay? Their presence is unexpected. It's probably unnerving, okay? And Herod is troubled. And so this word right here rightly conveys the idea that he's shaking, he's disturbed, he's thrown into confusion. And so you have the presence of these here, and it's an interesting time period because Herod, Caesar, Augustus, they were both close to death. In fact, uh, Herod will, will die in March or April uh, 4 BC, and so his death is, is near. You have Tiberius, who is the leader of the Roman army, who had stepped away uh, as well. And so you had all this unsettling things that were present. And then these magi, in, in a great group, appear, appear. And so that's the setting in, in this time period. Um, when you think about it, there's some time that has passed between the actual birth of Christ in Matthew 1 and the arrival of the wise men here in Matthew 2. And some believe some four to six months had, had passed, some even more than that, definitely two years or less for certain, um, which throws us off during Christmas time. It, it does me because all the nativities, right, have wise men present. So I'm always like, how does this happen? And I love someone at 9 a.m. say, listen, one of the things my grandmother did is she would put the wise men on the other side of the house, right? And I thought, how, that's great. how great is that? How great is that? And here's what his grandmother would do. <clears throat> she said, after Christmas, what she would do is she would leave the nativity and the wise men up. And, and slowly, each day, she would move them closer. I thought to myself, 
wow, this is great. This is great, right? To help remind her, right, of the events of Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. But that's the setting. That's, that's the time period. But, but there's a point to this text. And I think that background helps us understand, right, what's going on here and, and, and to what degree. Because when we think about these magi seeking, right, it's not just three guys seeking. You've got this, this big group that has come from the east that is seeking after this newborn king, this newborn king. And so I want us to see this this morning. Look at these four responses that we find in the text, right? And I pray this encourages our heart this morning. This setting and this time of the birth of Christ is the perfect time, the perfect time for the Savior to come. And look at the responses to his coming. In verse 3 through 4, we find King Herod, and we've said this a couple of times already, but it says when Herod the king, in verse 3, heard this, heard this questioning, heard that these magi were asking, where is this king of the Jews that has been born? It says that he was troubled, and not only him, but all Jerusalem with him. And then in verse 4, he gathered together all the chief priests, scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And so what do we see with Herod here? What is his response to this questioning of where is this newborn king, this king of the Jews? And so what do we see with Herod? No doubt curiosity. He was curious about this newborn king. He was troubled. He, was, he felt threatened even. But he was not curious enough or threatened enough, I would say, to seek the truth himself. We see in this text that he had a kingdom to run. He, he, he couldn't be expected, of course, to drop everything and run off to see this one who was born, who the Magi had traveled hundreds of miles to see. He had far too many responsibilities, far too many things going on just to take off at the drop of a hat and run around the countryside to find this newborn king. So what does he do? He, he gathers a group of politicians, theologians together, like we see in verse 4 and 5 and 6, and he asked them the question, where the Messiah was to be born. And so what do they do? They respond by quoting Micah. In chapter 5 and 6, they said to King Herod, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's interesting in, in this text, that last part there in verse 6 is something that is added here in Matthew, right? That we don't find in, in Micah 5, 2, where this is um, prophesied by the prophet. But we see it recorded here in Matthew, and it's added here, who will shepherd my people Israel. And so we see Herod asking the question of these politicians, of these theologians. But we see Herod Worried, fearful, curious, right? But not curious enough to seek after this one who's been born. And what we eventually see out of this, this king, right, is hostility. Great hostility. You see, his curiosity, his troubled soul turned to really wanting to eliminate this newborn king, the Messiah. 
In fact, if you go down to verse 16 of chapter 2, what do we see Herod do? He puts in this plan to annihilate, right, every two-year-old child or younger, and they will be killed. See, that was the heart of this king. He felt threatened. You see, he loved power. He loved his position. He loved his job. And what do we see as a result of that? He rejected Christ. He's despised. He opposed this one who has been born. And so we see King Herod's response of, of great hostility as he's threatened by this one who's been born, the Messiah. But look at verse 3 again. I want us to look at this because it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, but not only him, all Jerusalem with him. And so who does this include? The Jews, right? And so what are the Jews' response, this second group? You know, here you have the Magi. They come into a town. And I think there's some anticipation, right? There's excitement. They've followed this star to this point, right? For 800 miles. And they get to Jerusalem, and they start asking these questions of people in the city. Where has been born the king of the Jews? We, we saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And they probably expected the people of Israel to be just as excited or, or searching and talking about this one that they had come seeking after. But sadly, the majority of Jews were blinded, blinded by their unbelief. And no doubt the Jews were also fearful. What were they fearful of? They were fearful of King Herod, of his rule and, and his threats. And so this fear seems to control them to where their thoughts of the Messiah are not present. They have allowed their fear of man to rule and control their everyday life. And so the temporal has replaced the eternal. The day-to-day has replaced God due to their fear of man. And so the Jews' response is fear and unbelief. But there's another group here as well. These chief priests and these scribes, look at their response as we go back to verse 4 through 6. Herod gathers them together, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they respond with the prophecy, right, of, of, of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so they speak of the Scriptures. But it almost seems in this text, as we will see later in the Gospels with this same group, that they move with mere mechanics. And that's it. And sometimes we can be tempted to do that. We just go through the most motions of religion or religious acts. We can simply move through maybe a worship set, setting or, or, or go to an event with, with uh, the church or wherever and, and go through mere mechanics when it comes to religious things. And we miss Christ in it all. We simply just pass by him. And these guys, no doubt, that will be their track record moving forward. But what about the Magi? How did they respond? I think the first word I would tell you this morning is they were seeking. They were seeking. The Magi's journey was long. It was grueling. As we mentioned, some 800 miles, maybe 80 days of travel. And so if nothing less, these guys were serious about seeking after this newborn king. And look what happens. In verse 7, it tells us, 
Herod secretly calls the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, obviously, right, Herod's heart is is not to worship like we're going to see with the Magi. Herod has other ideas in mind. This This is a false humility. This is a lie. And then look what happens in verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen, okay, so that's past, in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And so look at verse 10. When they saw the star. So, so it seems as though the, the star appeared. It leads them there. Then it seems to be gone, or, or, or they didn't see it. And, and then it seems to appear again. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I, I love that text. Okay, They're not there yet, right? Like in verse 11, that they're not there yet. But they've just seen the star. And then look at verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so these are guys that were seeking. And so imagine this, right? I think sometimes we we have in our head, I know I did for the longest time, especially as a kid. I had a lot of confusion with these three magi and things I would hear, right? And so Try to remove from your head the idea that there were just three, okay? Because nowhere in the text does it say that, okay? But imagine this group, hundreds, maybe even a thousand, of of king seekers that that come from the east, and, and they come and they see this star, and they're rejoicing, they're worshiping. What? What amazing scene this had to be that will eventually, I imagine, overwhelm this, this little town of Bethlehem. And so this is an amazing occurrence here. And so they turn from seeking to worshiping, to worshiping. And so they see the star again, and it fills them with great Rejoicing. And so look at that back again in verse 9. They saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Great joy. This is worship. This is anticipation. This is expectation. This is excitement, right? Their, their worship is filled with joy. And I've got this question what joy fills them in this moment? That they're still six miles away. Have you ever thought about that? They're still six miles away, and they're filled with joyful anticipation of seeing the Messiah, of seeing the newborn king. And I can imagine in this this group so many different thoughts going on, right? Some thinking we're going to find a king. Some maybe thinking in the lines of Micah, of the Messiah. I mean, I can't imagine, but, but whatever the case was in this point, in this time, there was great anticipation. And it just got me thinking this week. I thought, started thinking, man, I live 
probably, I don't, I don't know how many miles, I've never even looked about it, uh, from the church, and I started thinking, you know, if, if, if my distance from the church, and some of us maybe live five or six miles from the church, how much anticipation do I have about coming and worshiping with you together on a Sunday morning, the King of Kings? I mean, because that's what it was like for these guys. They were anticipating they were still six miles away, but they were anticipating because they, they saw the star. And they were overwhelmed with great joy. And then they come upon him in the house. And so we see um, that we've moved from the manger scene, right, in Matthew 1, and now we have arrived in a house. And they see the child there with his mother Mary. And what do they do? They fall to the ground and they worship him. In the humble position that you would have before a king, they bow on their knees and they worship the Messiah. The Godhead veiled in flesh, the incarnate deity, and their response when they see him is worship. What is worship? We, we, may, we throw that word around, but maybe we forget sometimes what does that mean. It's, it's our response to God. It's our response to God. And we've, we've seen what worship doesn't look like with, with Herod and with the Jews and, and the chief priests. But worship is a response to God for who he is, for what he has done in what we say, right, and what we think about, and what we do. And we see that here with, with this brigade that gather as they see the child. But not only that, they, they give their gifts, and what are the gifts real quickly? Gold. Obviously, gold is real valuable as it is today. It was back then. You see frankincense, this pure incense. It was used as a fragrant scent in the meal offerings back in Leviticus for the scent that was symbolic, symbolically rising to God. You see, it also, you see myrrh as well. Myrrh you see throughout the Old Testament, Testament places like Psalm, you, you would put it on clothes. It was used as perfume. Uh, Esther, she uh, put it on uh, to get all dolled up for the king in Esther 2, 12. Uh, you also see it uh, in Mark chapter 15, used as anesthetic for uh, Jesus as it was mixed with wine. Um, you see in John 19 that it was used in preparing Jesus' body for burial as well. And so you see these, these treasures that they give and present to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we see that, and, and maybe often we think, what, what did that mean? And we've heard different representations of, of what these things meant. But this week I was, I was looking, and I found this, and I thought to myself, okay, th this is great, because I think this gets to the heart of it. Um. An author, a new author by the name of John Piper, he says this. He says, when you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying this. The joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up these things in the hope of enjoying you more, not things. Love that. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. I love that. It's the heart of the giving behind what's happening here. 
through this gift, God is going to do something too. He's going to provide for Joseph and Mary. These guys are poor, right? Joseph may be temporarily working in his trade. Um, and so you look at these gifts, and, and no doubt, uh, some believe it, it helped them travel, maybe eventually to, to Egypt, um, then back to Nazareth. And so these were gifts of provision as well. But behind it all was their heart. And then look at verse 12 as we wrap up. It says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Again, God uses a star. He uses a dream. So as we close, and just some thoughts and closure, what is our response to Jesus? How are we responding to Christ? The Magi who traveled so far were seeking. We're seeking. Are we seeking after Jesus? Does our life show that we are pursuing and seeking after Christ? That we're pursuing and seeking after truth and seeking, pursuing to live a life like him. We see in the scripture, Herod, who did not seek him. We see the Jews who did not seek him. The chief and priests and the scribes did not seek after him. Herod wanted others to do it for him, right? Sometimes maybe we can have that kind of attitude as well. Well, we can just you know, let others do it. I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to keep living my own life and be indifferent, be busy like these Jews and priests and scribes. But what God wants from us is, is what we see in the Magi here, that we must go, that we must seek. We must embark on the journey like they did. No matter what the length, regardless of the cost, we must be willing to seek after Jesus. For then and only then will we be totally and completely captured by the object of our seeking, which is Jesus himself. And only then will we respond like the Magi with joy and worshiping and opening our treasures to him and offering him all that we have and all that we are. This is greatly summed up in Jeremiah 29, verse 13 and 14, when Jeremiah says, these are words of God. He says, you will seek me, God says, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You see, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to pursue him and to seek him with all our heart. And he says in verse 14, he promises us this, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Have you ever been in a season where you're like, God, where are you in all this? Maybe your circumstances just kind of overwhelm you or maybe you don't understand really what's going on and and I love that promise where God just says, hey, listen, I, I'm here. I will be found by you. Seek me with all your heart. And he promises us this. He says, I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. God wants us to seek after him. He wants us to pursue him. And he says, when you seek after me, you will find me. And what great joy, right, it is when we seek after Christ and we experience his presence. And so we need to be seekers, but not only that, the question we'll close on this morning is what are we treasuring? What are we treasuring? When we are completely captured by the beauty and the wonder 
of a person or experience or a moment, what do we tend to do? We tend to open our treasures to them. At times, though, we open our treasures to people, to experiences and moments that are not truly worthy of that offering. As we see in this text this morning, only God is worthy of worship. The bottom line is, is how will I treasure Jesus today? How will I treasure Jesus this Advent season? Will I treasure him with my time? Will I treasure him with my energies, my affections, my efforts? And so what's our response? That's the first, fifth person in this text this morning is us. What's our response to this newborn king, to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us this, that Jesus came, and he came to seek after that which was lost. He came to die so that we could be saved from our sins. And so the scripture encourages us to repent, to believe, to turn from trusting everything else and to turn and trust in Jesus alone. So today, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you never have turned from trusting in other things, clinging to other things and and leaning on treasures of this world, and turn to Christ as Savior and Lord of all. I want to encourage you today, that is the response that Jesus wants from us above all, is to turn and trust in him as Savior and Lord, that he would be king of our life. Let us pray.